Well, I'd like to ask you to turn your Bible to 2 Samuel, or 2 Samuel chapter 3. 2 Samuel 3. We're going to end up in Psalm chapter 3, but we're going to go ahead and do like we did last week and get a little bit of a historical background of the psalm before we get into it. Um, but we're going to go ahead and look first at 2 Samuel chapter 3. But before we begin, let's go ahead and pray one more time and ask God to work through His Word this morning. Father, we thank You for sending Christ. Christ, we thank You for being submissive to the Father, for allowing Yourself to come to this earth in order to die on our behalf and to die on that cross. Thank You for the power of the cross to forgive sinners like us, people who don't deserve forgiveness. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have as a result of Christ submitting himself to his Father's will. And Lord, we thank you for coming out from that grave that death could not hold you. And we have victory over sin and death as a result of your gospel work. And Holy Spirit, we pray now that you'll work through your word that you used men to write. And pray that we will learn much as a result of this sermon, be encouraged and edified and to be spurred on to live more like Christ. And it's in his name that we pray this. Amen. There are some people um, who are really into people watching. Right? Some of you are yourselves really into people watching. You like to sit in a mall, you like to sit in an airport and just kind of watch people go by, maybe pretend you're a little bit of Sherlock Holmes and just kind of maybe guess their occupation or guess the kind of life that they live just by maybe looking at your clothes. Some of you women might be able to notice, oh wow, that's a Gucci purse or something like that and be like, oh, they must have money. But people like to people watch. We like to watch one another um, as we go about our lives. And I like to people watch too, but one thing that I like to do a little more than that is family watch. So don't get nervous, but I like to watch your families. I like to watch as many families as I can. It's really fun to see how families interact with each other, to see how moms and dads interact with their kids, to see how husbands and wives interact with each other. Do they say certain things? Do they look at each other a certain way? And you kind of pick up a little bit of a read on what the relationship is like. Some of you are part of big families. Some of you are part of smaller families. And it's interesting to just kind of note the things that each family has in similar, that are similar between each other. Or maybe the things that are not so similar. But some things that may be similar, it seems like every family has got the crazy uncle, right? Maybe you are the crazy uncle. Um, every family seems to have a grandmother or a great aunt or somebody that makes all of these sweaters that all the kids have to wear at Christmas time and they have the four smile and they have the big Santa on their shirt or whatever. There's a lot of similarity. But another similarity, and not on a very happy note, is that there is often that proverbial rug in each of our families. And if you were to take that rug and look under it, you will almost undoubtedly find dirt. There are things under every family's rug that have been swept there and that they are not discussed, they are not talked about, they are not dealt with. There are embarrassing things maybe that have been said in the past. Maybe there have been hurtful things that have been said. And instead of dealing with them, instead of taking that dirt out from underneath the rug and dealing with it, throwing it into the trash can, 
we rather just leave the dirt under the rug and not deal with it at all. And as we've been going through and learning about this king of Israel, David, and we've been looking at some of his psalms, in David's family, there was no difference. There was a rug in David's family. In fact, the Bible provides a lot of information concerning the problems and the sin and the issues that were going on in David's family. Of course, we know about the sin that we looked at last week. Remember in Psalm 51, and David here, he's, he's repentant. Right? He's, he's asking God to forgive him of his sins, of the things that he had done. The, the adultery that he had committed with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband. But as the story continues, after this event where David committed that adultery and he killed Uriah, after this, the downward spiral of David's life continued. It just kept swirling down with different sins and different problems that were going on in his family, certain sin that he wanted swept under the rug and that he didn't want to deal with. And in 2 Samuel chapter 3, if you're there in verse 3, we meet one of David's children that becomes incredibly well known in the Bible, but for reasons that are not so good. Look at the second half of 2 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 3. And the third, the third son, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Gesher. So this is important information about this guy named Absalom. And it helps us to actually understand what happens later on in the story. But this third son of David named Absalom was the daughter of a girl named Princess Maacah. And her father was actually the king of another independent nation called Gesher. And so Gesher, this place called Gesher, is actually in the northeast, is the northeast of Israel. It's its own independent kingdom. And so what often happened in these days, and even in recent centuries, you know that um, a, a king would marry um, a princess or somebody from another kingdom in order to establish a good relationship with that other kingdom. So Gesher was right on the outside of Israel, so it was a smart move for David to say, hey, I'm going to marry that um, girl who's from that kingdom because that will establish a good relationship between our two kingdoms and we won't have to worry about them intruding or vice versa. So it was to establish peace between the two nations. So David married Micah and they had this son together whose name is Absalom. And so Absalom's father is the king of Israel, right? Absalom's father is David. He's the king of Israel. But his grandfather was the king of Gesher. So we didn't only have half royal blood, He had royal blood from David, and he had royal blood from this other kingdom called Geshur. So now turn over to 2 Samuel 15. A few pages over. The next time we hear of David and Micah's son Absalom is within this horrible situation that David wants swept under his family's rug. What happens is this, Absalom has a brother and his name is Amnon. And Amnon becomes infatuated with his own sister whose name is Tamar. And so he tries to get her to commit immorality with her. So Amnon and Tamar, Amnon tries to get her to commit immorality with him. She refuses her brother, which obviously she should. But Amnon goes ahead and he rapes his sister, Tamar. So Tamar, of course, she's beside herself. She's obviously upset and, and, and 
gone through a lot of trauma as a result of this. She ends up living in her brother Absalom's house and what the text calls her a desolate woman. But Absalom is furious with Amnon for raping his sister Tamar. I mean, which of you brothers wouldn't be? You'd be furious if somebody did anything like that to your sister. So news of that rape had reached uh, Absalom's ears. He's furious. News of the rape reaches King David's ears, and the text says that he's furious as well, but for whatever reason, we're not exactly sure, he does nothing about it. Which of you fathers here, if something happened like that to your daughter, would do absolutely nothing about it? David does nothing about it. It could have been because he himself had committed a great sexual sin. It could have been because he had murdered a man himself. It could have been out of blind love for his son Amnon. It could have been any number of things. But the bottom line is he does nothing about it. Instead, David keeps this incident under the rug, as it were. But Absalom decides that he's going to do something about it. Absalom decides that he is going to take matters into his own hands. So after this, Absalom goes ahead after a couple of years, he, he waits. He doesn't retaliate right away on his brother Amnon. He goes away and, and he actually waits two years. And then when the moment was right, Absalom struck down his brother Amnon and killed him for raping Tamar. After this, but, you know, obviously there could be backlash for killing his own brother, who himself would have been a prince of Israel. So he realizes there could be backlash for this. So he goes ahead and he leaves Jerusalem. And guess where he goes? He goes to his grandfather's kingdom over in Gesher, which wasn't too far. So he has that opportunity. Absalom goes ahead. He goes over to Gesher, runs away, and he stays in Gesher, his grandfather's kingdom, for three years. After the three years, he ends up coming back to Jerusalem Yet he doesn't go and see his father David right away. He actually waits two more years to see David. So it has been five years since uh, he has avenged his sister by killing Amnon. And it has been five years since he sees his father David. So he goes up. His father allows him into his presence. He sees Absalom. They have a conversation. We don't really know much of that conversation and what happened. But we do know what happens right after this conversation. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment... Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe of Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were a judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So what was happening was Absalom was systematically stealing all the hearts of the men of Israel. 
Interestingly enough, Absalom was setting himself up as some sort of judge where he would intercept these men, he would hear out what they had to say, and then he would give his own advice of what they should do. So essentially, he's shaking hands and kissing babies. He's playing the part of a politician, right? He's trying to win the masses to himself. He's lobbying for himself, saying, well, well, I could be a judge for you. And ultimately, what he is doing is he's stealing the hearts of the people of Israel away from their king. Now look in verse 7. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, so this has been going on for four years, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in heaven. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived to Geshur at Aram saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all of the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from the city of Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So now turn over to our text in Psalm chapter 3. So basically what is going on, to boil it down a little bit, here comes the coup, right? Here comes the attempt to overthrow David. Absalom has stolen the hearts of the people of Israel. The conspiracy to overthrow David was growing and mounting and getting bigger. The people who supported Absalom were growing. The conspiracy was strong. So it was so strong that David decides that he's got to get out of Jerusalem. He's got to save his own life. So David the king is on the run from his own son and in the midst of all of this turmoil and all of this struggle and all of, you can imagine the brokenheartedness of this king over what his son is doing in light of all of this, this is what he says in Psalm chapter 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing on your people. So in verses 1 and 2, you see David's lament. You see his expression of grief to God. In verses 3 to 6, you see David's confidence. He shows us where he's going to put his confidence. It's going to be in God. And in verses 7 to 8, we see David's request. But look with me again at verse 1. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. In verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him. In God, So you notice the use of the word many three times in the first two verses. Many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying I, that there's no salvation for me. So it wasn't just Absalom. So David is standing here and saying that it's not just Absalom. Many are rising against me. Many are trying to do me in. It was the entire nation of Israel that was rising up against their king. So those who were once considered his people... 
that he ruled well over were now rising up as his foes. Those who once hailed him as their king, as his majesty, they were coming up against him. And those who believed God was with David now believed that his God would not save him from this particular struggle. And David is lamenting all of this, verses 1 and 2. He's lamenting this. He's expressing his grief. Again, can you imagine your own child rising up against you and trying to overthrow you, trying to have a coup and get you out and to hurt you and if need be, even put you to death. This is what's going on in David's life. His own child coming up against him and he's lamenting this. He's grieving over this. Grieving to God. And you know, it's good and right to express our grief to God over what we're going through. That is good and right. A lot of times we get maybe kind of push that off to the side and say, oh no, that's not important. No, it is good to express to God what you're going through. To tell Him how you're feeling. The struggles and the battles and the issues. Our lives can be so complex and feel like we don't have anybody who can understand, but we have a God who truly does understand, who wants to hear our laments, or who wants to hear our griefs and what we're going through. Sometimes it's easy to kind of think, well, God is omniscient. He already knows what I'm going through. I don't, I don't need to tell him. Well, of course God knew what David was going through here, but he still expresses to God what is going on in his heart. God loves to hear the prayers and the words of his children, the concerns of his children. But we do need to be careful on this. That there is a difference between lamenting and complaining. There's a big difference between lamenting and complaining. There's a big difference between expressing your grief to God and moaning and groaning to God. There's a difference between, God, this is what I'm going through, and these are the problems that I'm having right now, and having that person to understand and to listen to. There's a difference between that and, God, why in the world would you let this happen in my life? I can't believe that you would allow this trial or this struggle to come into my life. There's a huge chasm between those two. So it's very important that we're careful to express our grief, but to go to where David ends up, and that is saying where his trust is. You see, it's very easy to dwell on the battles and the problems and the struggles that we're facing over and above the truths of God that make those struggles bearable. And though it's okay and good to lament and to tell God what's going on in our lives, we need to quickly move like David does in verse 3 to begin reflecting upon the truths of God. He spends the bulk of this chapter reflecting on his confidence in God. Look again at verse 3. But you, O Lord, you're, you're a shield about me. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. So there's three things that David says. You're my shield. You're my glory. And you're the lifter of my head. So David here, again, he's, he's in the midst of real physical turmoil. That there is a battle that's going to be waging. That his life is being sought after. It's a real physical problem going on. That his head is being called for. Yet he begins to say what is true about God. So here's my lament, God. Here's my grieving over what I'm going through. But you are a shield about me. That God is my shield. That that he is my protector. He is the one guarding me. He is my glory, David says. it, It could be translated the giver of glory. God is the giver of glory. And God is the lifter of my head. 
Your head is down, you're in shame, you're upset about something. You don't really want to assess it, but God lifts our head in encouragement and gives us that confidence that we need. And although some of you might not be hotly pursued right now by somebody who's trying to kill you, we are all constantly waging war in the spiritual realm where these truths are totally relevant for us as Christians. So we might not have somebody like Absalom pursuing us, but we do have the devil pursuing us. We may not wrestle against flesh and blood like Paul mentions, but we do wage war against the rulers and authorities and causing power and spiritual forces of evil. That we wake up every day in a spiritual battle and that that is not nothing. That is significant. That is more significant than being hotly pursued and somebody wanting to off with our head kind of a thing. But it's a spiritual battle. They're fighting against cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. And when we're in those battles, are we going to complain about it or are we going to reflect upon the truths of God that make those battles bearable? Your knowledge of God must regulate your thoughts and actions. No matter how you feel, no matter what you're going through, your knowledge of God must regulate your thoughts and actions. Otherwise, what in the world is the point? What is the point of being a Christian, of trusting in Christ, of reading his word, of having that in our lives, if it does absolutely nothing when we're in the battle, or when we're having a struggle, or we're having a problem? Being a Christian requires this knowledge of God, an intimate knowledge of God, and it has to regulate our thoughts. It has to regulate how we act in certain situations. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever is an intimate knowledge of God that changes us from living lives of wandering and despair to lives of faith and hope. That when the bad thing comes into the lives of an unbeliever, there isn't much hope. It's just that, well, I hope this passes. I hope this goes away. But for the Christian, it is a life of faith and confident expectation that God is going to make good on who he is. That the truths of God are true and real and good for us as his people. That he will be our shield. That he is our glory. That he is the one who lifts up our head when we are going through something significant. David was hopeful in his God. Look at verse 4. I cried to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Verse 5, I lay down and slept. I awoke again for the Lord sustained me. Verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So verse 4, David essentially says, I know that God would answer me. Verse 5, he says that he sleeps like a baby, that he's being sustained by God. Verse 6, he's so confident in God that the thousands of foes who are rising up against him will not cause him to fear. Imagine that, particularly in verse 5, when we're going through struggles and we're having problems. The first thing we say is, oh, I lost a whole lot of sleep last night. We lose sleep over things. We lose sleep over the things that make us anxious. And again, the struggles and the problems. But for David, he says, man, I have such a trusting God. I, I lay down and I slept. I awoke and the Lord sustained me. So in verses 1 and 2, we see David's lament. In verses 3 to 6, we see David's confidence. And now in verses 7 and 8, we see David's prayer. He says this in verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me. Oh my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Here David is calling out for God to act. Acting for David. Acting on David's behalf. You remember that David and God were in covenant with one another at this point. They have a covenant with one another. And God is going to remain faithful to his covenant with David. And that he is going to bring somebody forth from David. He was going to bring the Messiah King through David who would rule and reign for all eternity. God was going to be protecting David. And so David is calling out to God. David as the lesser king and God as the great king. He's calling out to him, beseeching him to act on his behalf. So he's expressed his grief to God. He's expressed his confidence in God. And now he's saying, God, arise and act. Act on my behalf. He asked God to arise, to rise to the challenge, to rise to the battle, to face David's wicked enemies. David basically asked in verse 7, you see it again. He says, strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked David is essentially asking that God would punch his enemies in the face and break their teeth. Yet the sad reality is that the wicked enemies that David is referring to are not Amalekites. They're not Ammonites. They're not anybody else who lives in Canaan. They are the very people of God. The enemies against David were the people of Israel. And David is asking God to punch them in the face. And to break their teeth. So in order for God to save David from his enemies. God is going to have to crush his own people. And the same is true for us. In order for God to save us. He had to crush his own son. That is the gospel. That in order to save you. From what you deserve. In order to, serve, to save you from the death that is due to every single one of us, God had to crush His own Son on our behalf. Verse 8 begins, and this salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is true for the dilemma David finds himself, the the situational problem that David was in. The salvation of David out out of that particular problem was dependent upon the Lord. It belonged to the Lord. That the Lord Himself is the one who dispenses His salvation. But it's the same for us as well. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation doesn't belong to us. It's not something for us to attain. It's not something for us to say, oh yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead. Salvation will be of me. I'll go ahead and save myself. No, not at all. Salvation alone only belongs to the Lord. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Salvation belongs only to the Lord. But at this point, we still don't know what happens to David and Absalom. We know there is this coup attempt, right? That Absalom is trying to overthrow David. We know David's lament. We see his confidence. We see his request to God. But we're kind of in the Paul Harvey episode. Well, what is the rest of the story? And the rest of the story is that there is essentially a civil war. The men of Israel under Absalom and the supporters of David, and they go to battle. Supporters of David, they rise up and they go out. The men of Israel come out who are following Absalom. They clash and 20,000 Israelites die over this. 
2 Samuel tells us that this battle that was between Absalom supporters and David supporters, that this battle took place over the entire country. That thousands and thousands of Jews did battle over this issue between father and son, over this attempt of Absalom to overthrow his father David. And some of you know what ends up happening to Absalom. He's riding on his mule, right? And he's riding along and he gets his head stuck in a tree. And when supporters of David saw this, they go up to Absalom and they take javelins or spears and they throw them into the chest of Absalom, bringing him to the ground and they strike him down dead. And we see the record of David's response to his son's death in 2 Samuel 18, which says this, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. So again, the words of a broken-hearted father who loved his third-born son, but who had died because of the issue between them. So God heard and answered the request for salvation from David's enemies, but it came at a tremendous cost. It came at the cost of 20,000 men who would die in the battle. It came at the cost of his own son Absalom. And David wished that he could have been the one to die instead of his son, instead of his enemy. He wished he could have died in his enemy's place. And my friends, this is what we have in the gospel, that Jesus has come, And he has died on behalf of his enemies, on our behalf, so that we could be saved. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for sending Christ to die for his enemies. For those of us here who hated you, wanted nothing to do with you, you sent Christ to die on our behalf, making your enemies your friends, making your enemies your adopted children, making your enemies people who you would rule and reign with forever. Lord, we thank you for this account and we thank you for this song. Lord, I pray that as we express our griefs and our struggles and our battles to you, that it will not lead to complaining, but to a right understanding of who you are in light of all of the things that we're going through, trusting in you alone. And Lord, we pray that you will arise and act on our behalf as we go through the many battles that we face within our lives. We thank you for being our God, our God who has called us to be in covenant with him and who will protect us and act on our behalf as you did for your servant David. We thank you for all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.